Industry has lodged a pretty strong objection to the latest version of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, known as CMMC. The Defense Department has been working and reworking CMMC for several years now. It's an attempt to make sure contractors have the controls in place to safeguard controlled unclassified information. The Coalition for Government Procurement has raised the latest objections. We get more from Coalition member and procurement attorney Rob Metzger. Rob, good to have you back. Well, thank you. And the CAP process. Tell us what that is, the latest proposal. What are the contours of what it is that you're objecting to here? The CAP is the CMMC assessment process. It's a guide, and it's uh, been the product of the Cyber AB, which is the organization that oversees the training and accreditation of people who are supposed to help with CMMC, including the C3PAOs, who are those certified assessors. Well, the CAP, uh, in theory, is uh, supposed to tell the assessors and those who are going to be assessed just what the process uh, is going to be for preparation and then conduct of the assessment. I tell my clients that they would want to know that process so that they're not surprised uh, when the assessor comes and asks for things different than they have reason to expect. The problem is that the draft cap, which was released a little over a month ago, Tom, came out um, as an extremely elaborate, kind of a paint-by-numbers exercise, too much detail and too much of a prescriptive approach, in my view, and and that of many others. What I was hoping to see is uh, flexibility. I was hoping to see more deference to the expertise of the professional assessors who have to be trained and accredited to do this. And what we got was something that sort of made the burdens, the ardor of having to endure and succeed with the CMMC process more difficult. And I thought that was uh, against the grain. And I thought that the redo, uh, the review of the program, and it was quite extensive when the Biden administration took over from the Trump administration, didn't they say at the time that one of the things they wanted to do was make it easier on small business, which is the bulk of organizations that will be affected by this? That's right. So I'm a co-chair of the cyber committee of uh, the Coalition of Government Procurement. And in that role, I helped draft their comments, which were about 10 pages in length and which were submitted um, to DOD and to the cyber AB. And that was really the, the first point that uh, we raised in those comments. We went back and looked at what DOD had said when it uh, announced CMMC and then when it announced this revision to 2.0. And it said that it was going to make this simpler. And it seemed to be attentive then to the challenges that small businesses face. And yet since then, too much has happened that seems to go in the opposite direction. And the cap seemed to be pouring salt on the wounds, if you will. I, like others, agree that small and medium-sized businesses, as well as primes, need to do a better job to defend against real threats that would like to steal or compromise sensitive information. But we don't want to you know, kill the patient with the medicine. And there's a real danger that CMMC could become so difficult, so expensive, and so uncertain as in outcome that some companies are going to choose to leave the defense industrial base. That's bad. We may discourage or preclude innovators from coming into the DIB. That's just as bad, maybe worse. And we also could be encouraging companies to sort of gamble and engage in misconduct. You might figure it's better to say you're doing it right and hope you never get assessed or then try to explain your way out if you do. None of these are good. 
So we need to make some changes. All right. We're speaking with Rob Metzger. He's an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell and a member of the Coalition for Government Procurement. And you're proposing in the statement from the coalition to the Defense Department and the Cyber AB, you said we have serious reservations regarding the cap and urge that it be withdrawn, reconsidered and reissued in a fundamentally different form. So you're not asking for tweaks here. You're asking for a whole new approach. And basically in this 10 pages of objections to them, what should it look like, do you feel? Well, first, uh, there was a town hall of the Cyber AB, and uh, Matt Travis, who, who runs the organization, is a dedicated, hardworking servant of the public interest. He said essentially that uh, the present version of the cap is not something that must be used. He said that it's going to be changed and it will not actually become effective or required until we get these new CMMC rules. And that may not be until the summer of next year or maybe later. Um, I would like to, to move away from this process-intensive, rule-driven approach. I think we need more flexibility, and I think we need to tailor the whole assessment process to the nature of the company being assessed. Uh, some companies would merit or demand a, a more rigorous approach, uh, others less. Right now, essentially, the same process of assessment for each of 110 cyber controls in the NIST standard has to be undertaken for any company in the defense industrial base, small, medium, or large, and irrespective of what it does. That's not realistic in the real world. There are tens of thousands of companies, Tom, that will be subject to assessment under CMMC. The business and technical circumstances of everyone is different. And so we have to introduce some play in the joints, if you will, not to dilute the value of the assessment, but to give companies a higher confidence that they can succeed and to give more um, discretion to the assessors to apply their skills in the circumstance of the individual company. And the CMMC invokes these 110 requirements coming from that NIST special publication that people are familiar with. Is the difficulty in companies all having to have the 110 controls in place, or is the difficulty in what it requires of them to prove that it's in place to a third-party assessor and therefore to the Defense Department, or is it the whole chain of events? It's both. The 110 controls have their origin in a NIST document that was prepared for non-federal organizations around seven years ago. And each of the controls are stated in just a, a single sentence. But in the intervening years, there's been a growing body of documentation, including uh, assessment guides from NIST and then assessment guides from CMMC that amount to many hundreds of pages. And and what has happened is that assessors seem to want to prove and demonstrate and have evidence for everything. Instead of taking the necessary propositions or looking for sufficient evidence, there's just too much discussion of requiring a body of evidence for each of 110 controls. And that's complicated enough for a small business that might have one or two product lines. But if you get to bigger businesses who might have many cage codes or 10, a dozen, a hundred different product lines and programs, well, you know, being obsessive and prescriptive about the evidence you require is a recipe for assessments that are not only extraordinarily expensive, but also will produce uncertain results at a fair amount of likely contention. One of the things that was said in the coalition document is that DOD and CMMC and the AB and the assessors 
ought to focus more on those cyber measures which are most important and which will have the best results rather than you know having a paint by numbers approach that demands evidence of everything because it's just too hard and the benefit of let's call it uh, an over arduous approach uh, is is dwarfed by the, the costs of, of that of that uh, direction. And you're also mentioning to the folks there that you're calling the cap premature, to quote your statement, the coalition statement, it calls for an assessment process that is legally unsupported until the CMMC 2.0 regulations are in effect. So it's cart before the horse. Well, very much so, and I think the cyber IAB recognizes it. Look, for all the talk about uh, CMMC, um, right now there are, are no CMMC process regulations in place. There are some important regulations, adequate security, using 171, doing a self-assessment, submitting your score to SIPRs. Those are in place and they apply to everyone. But this whole new CMMC regime is not something that's going to become legally binding until the new regulations are published and then afterwards until they become effective. But even then, Tom, even when the regulations are in place, maybe a year from now, we're not going they're not going to affect any individual contractor until they show up in a request for information, a request for proposal, a change order or a contract. And so to to, to have people following the rigors of this uh, cyber security assessment process which is written around the CMMC documentation and anticipates the new rule to have all that done before the rule is in place is putting, you know, not just the cart before the horse, they're in kind of separate fields. That cart that you're building isn't in the same place as the horse that you have to ride. Sure. And so what what we urged is that, you know, between now and the effective date of the regulations, let's focus on the methods that DOD has already used in the so-called DIBCAC high assessments that have been conducted of more than 300 companies. Those have proven to be workable. They are much more, uh, let's say, accommodating of contractor circumstances. Not easy, but not sort of difficult for its own sake. And I think uh, last night, uh, Matt Travis said, in effect, that the Cyber AB agrees with that proposition. Right. That was my question. The Cyber AB and, I guess by extension, the Defense Department then have taken this objection that you've sent into account. Yeah, the way it was put last night is that the CAP and other CMMC unique documentation could be used as uh, guides to inform assessors in the interval. And that's fine, as long as they're not controlling. There is useful insight, even in the CAP. You know, for all of its you know, excess and complication, there's a lot of useful things in there. And there's very many useful things in the CMMC-specific documentation, such as the assessment guide or the scoping guidance. And there's nothing wrong with the assessors or the companies being assessed, having a look at that and being in informed as to what they should do to improve their security and enhance their ability to demonstrate that security. But you don't want to be governed by something that's tied to new rules, which are not public and are not effective and are are not presently known to anyone other than the drafters. Rob Metzger is an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell and a member of the Coalition for Government Procurement. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information, including the document coming from the coalition at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.